We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 16 each and every week. Um, here we make looking at God's Word in the Bible central to our time together because we believe that God speaks to us through His Word. And I, we're looking today at Matthew 16 from verse 24. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Well, good morning and um, welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Really great to have you with us for our series in the search. And if this is your first time in a church gathering or church meeting, it's so good to have you with us. I hope you really enjoy your time as we dive into this question of the search for identity. Um, on that as well, if you, um, if you aren't aware, the whole series is kind of meant to kind of all stick together, that actually the search for meaning and identity and connection and wonder are all actually connected to one another. Uh, so if you wanted to, the podcasts go up each week on our podcast on Spotify or iTunes, so you can grab those if you want as well. But it'd be great to, uh, to dive into. But today, today we're looking at the search for identity. And, uh, and this one, as we, as we think about identity, it does remind me of my, the early stages of my career as a teacher. When I got straight out of uni, my first job was just down the road at an all-girls high school. And so I was a 22-year-old 20, PE teacher for the first time teaching in an all-girls school. And even before I've said anything, you already know I was in way over my head. But on my third day, and this, this probably illustrated just how far out of my depth I was, on my third day, on my first lunch duty, I had to break up a fight. And no one had ever trained me for this either. And so I just went in there, and in the back of my head, I was like, just... Just don't do anything that's going to end up on like a current affair. So I'm trying to break up a fight by pushing them apart by the face and that sort of thing, just to not do anything that would be like, would get me in any kind of trouble. And I realized at that point, I was just, I'm just struggling in every way. There were behavioral issues in all kinds of classes. I had no idea how to manage this. And so when it came along that there was a professional development day um, about, you know, teaching kids who, had, who exhibited difficult behaviors, I wanted to go for two reasons. One was just for a day off teaching. Just needed, just needed to breathe it before I get back into it. But secondly, I really did want to know if they could actually help me in any way. How do you handle some of the kids that were like, there's some pretty extreme behaviors. And while I was at that day, it was, it, was a, it was a pretty helpful day. It was run by someone who ran, who ran a school that was basically the DAPTO of public schools. Like it's end of the line, right? This is your last stop before you're out of the system completely. And I'd visited the school, and it was a school where um, the class was, you only had six students, but there were six of the best. These were elite, naughty kids. And there was kind of panic buttons on the edge of the, the classroom, just to let you know something about the context. But what these people were doing were working with kids who exhibited, you know, the most difficult behaviors in school. And one insight that this guy gave that was super helpful, at least partly in addressing the behaviors, but also in just understanding some of these kids. Because as a teacher, you just feel like, why... Why do you hate me and want to ruin my life? And just listening to what he said just gave some context to what was going on. He said, it's usually the case that kids will try and reproduce the home environment at school. So if at home, the message they constantly get is, you're bad, and they get rejection, what they'll do when they get around other authority figures and other adults is try to provoke the same response. And so it's not personal. It's not because they know you and are out to get you. But oftentimes, it's this force of habit that kids are like, well, I'm bad, so I do bad things. 
Like my identity is kind of getting rejected or having conflict with adult authority figures. And just it helped, one, to have some compassion, but also some insight into how to sort of break the cycle. But it is a reminder, isn't it, that identity is crucial to how we act. How we think about ourselves has a huge impact on how we behave in the world and our relationships. And when we talk about identity, you could probably make it as simple as this. People have written reams and reams and stuff on it. But if you wanted to boil it down, it's probably this. Just worth and want. That is, my worth, how do I know that I'm actually valuable, that my life matters, and want. What do I actually want to do and not want to do? When people say something along the lines, and it's very rare that someone would articulate it like this, but when someone says, I don't know who I am, that's usually what they're getting at, isn't it? I don't know if I'm worth anything, and I don't seem to know what I want. What do I want to do? What do I want or not want? And so it's these two things, worth and want. We want to know that our lives mean something, that they're valuable, and we want to know what we want to do and what we don't want to do. And the first and most obvious way we look for worth is in other people's opinions. It's pretty understandable that this is how we generally base our lives on. What we do is we find characteristics that people say are valuable and then we look for feedback from other people as to whether or not we are those things. So if you're wondering, am I smart or am I dumb? Am I tough or am I weak? Am I attractive or am I unattractive? Am I likable or not likable? Am I creative or am I boring? You know, all these things, we, we get feedback from what other people say about us and then we decide I am or am not these things. And that's what we base our worth on. And to do this, we look for feedback from important people in our lives. In early life, it's parents or maybe teachers or those kind of authority figures. But as we go on, it's our peers or our bosses or the in crowd in whatever circle we're kind of working in. And we look for, we look for information about ourselves. That's why social media is kicked off so massively for our generation. It's not just the technology. It's a way of getting feedback on ourselves. If you post something funny and people like it or laugh at it or comment on it, you're like, ah, oh, there you go, I am funny. And if you post something funny and it goes completely under the radar, you're like, okay, I'll just steer clear of that, I'm not a funny person. If you post a photo of yourself that, that you consider to be attractive and it gets that affirmation, then you're like, well, I must be. And if not, then you're like, well, maybe I'm not. We look for feedback on these things. But here's the problem. The problem with basing our worth on what others think of us, even though it's, it's hard not to do, is that what do you do when you get mixed feedback? Because inevitably you do. What do you do then? It, no matter who you are or how famous or popular you are, you never get to the point where you receive just universal praise from other people. So what do we do with that? What we tend to do at that point is you'll choose a person or a people group and esteem their opinion of you over a bunch of others. So to give you like a really clear example, when I was in primary school, I had a lot of run-ins with teachers. I think I've shared this with you before. When the vice principal took me aside, who knew my family, and said to me, you're a disgrace to your family, I thought, okay, well, here's, here are the paths before me. I can either work really hard to try and get these teachers to like me, which doesn't seem to be working out, or I can just double down on being a naughty kid. And I can, I can use my, and you know, when you, when you do that as well, it actually ups your credibility with your peers anyway. And so that was pretty much how I mapped out my school life. I was like, okay, teachers aren't going to like me anyway, whatever. I'll double down on being the class clown and that'll be my identity. But we do these kind of things. When you get disapproval from one important group, you'll try and find it somewhere else. And the two places we generally try to do it as grown-ups is either in romantic relationships or in career. 
See, finding a romantic partner is often what we turn to for redemption. If we feel like a sense of rejection from important relationships, our family or our peers, you might say, okay, well, I'm going to put everything, I'm going to put all my chips on one person. And if they affirm me and they say I'm a good person, they love me and I'm valuable, then, it, then I can reject all the others. Or maybe it will mean that it just eases the pain of rejection from others. You take one person and esteem their value over all the others. But of course, what happens with this is it makes relationships very difficult, doesn't it? Because in relationship, if your whole worth is hanging on this relationship, it'll make you super needy or super critical or both. Because so much of who you are and your value in the world is hanging on this relationship. It'll mean that when you get some kind of negative feedback from your partner, that you'll be crushing. Not only that, but if you lose the relationship, it can really send you spiraling. And this is what happens when our worth is kind of based on one particular relationship. And so for that reason, because relationships can be so unpredictable, often the next port of call is, well, what about career? And career seems like it's not about approval from others, but in the end, it is kind of actually really, isn't it? It's just that we go from wanting approval from one group of individuals or an individual to wanting it from a group of people in general. So we go after careers that have status according to society. Careers that either bring big money or careers that, that show that we are smart or capable or a person who can do stuff and get things done. And ideally, it's both. But often it's the case that behind a really career-driven person is the longing for approval, for wanting respect or status. And it's either approval of parents or peers. Once I have this career, then people are going to look at me in a certain way. Or once I have this amount of money, people are going to look at me in a certain way. Or it might be in spite of rejection from groups. My parents said I wouldn't amount to anything, well, look at me now. My peers and that rejected me at school, but look at me now. That's, what's, that's what high school reunions are about, isn't it? It's going back and getting redemption, getting a flex on everyone else who was there. See, look at me now, you picked on me, but look what you missed, right? And so career can often be something that we dig into for a sense of worth. This is what makes me valuable as a person. This is why I matter. And what happens is it goes from something that we do to something that we are. And it becomes not just that I'm a good accountant or a good doctor or a good athlete. It actually becomes my career means that I'm a good person. And there are a few signs that career has gone from just something that we do or a vocation to an identity. And the first one is this. The first one is obsession. We most commonly call this workaholism. It's the idea of being addicted to work, the idea that you almost can't stop working. And you can always get to the point where it feels like even stopping working starts to feel like almost like I'm going to die, even though the irony is if I don't stop working, it will lead me to an early grave. We, stop, we can't stop because we feel like if we fail, it's not just that we lose a job or a career, so we lose our whole sense of self or worth. And so we get obsessed about career. We can't stop working, even if it means we lose really important relationships in our life, even all of them. We can double down on career and just go after it because there's a sense that if I have this, then I'm going to be someone. But the second sign that career has kind of gone from being something you do to something you are is, is criticism. If your career is about your worth, you'll find it very difficult to keep a distance from your job and yourself. I don't know if it, how many people watched the, the documentary with Michael Jordan uh, called The Last Dance. 
But there are so many, <laughs> there are so many memes floating about of him of just where he says, I took that personally. Because again and again in the documentary, there are all these incidents that happen and his reflection on it was, I took that personally. And the irony about it is, most of the things that happened were not personal. <laughs> Someone else gets an MVP award and he's like, I took that personally. Like, that guy in no way was trying to do this to harm your life. He's just going about his life with his career in mind, right? But everything becomes personal because when what you do is your identity, it is yourself. So someone's not just criticizing your work, they're criticizing yourself. And you might have experienced this at work, either you yourself have been like this or you criticized someone and didn't realize that you poked a bear that actually you weren't just criticizing their work, they took it personally like it was this, you're actually attacking their sense of self. When your worth and your career get kind of enmeshed, you, we find it very hard to take criticism. And ironically then, it often sucks the life out of the careers that we actually enjoy. If you're a musician, you can go from doing something that you really love, and in the initial stages, the draw towards that as a career is that this is just something I, I feel like I can do and I love doing it. But once, once it's a career, it's almost like I have to make music and other people have to like it, otherwise, otherwise it's nothing. And it actually starts to hollow out the actual work. Because instead of thinking about just writing good music or something that's meaningful, you have this secondary thought, which is, is anyone going to like it? Will anyone buy it? Will anyone pay money for it? And the irony is then often in artistic careers, you actually need to not want people to like it in order to create good art. When our identity kind of becomes fused with what we do, we find it hard to separate ourselves from it. And when this happens, when our worth is in what other people think of us, it also becomes really hard to know what you want. So this happens when our worth is in our career or in others' opinions. And it complicates our wants. We find it hard to know whether we're doing things just because we want to do them or because we're doing them because of how other people will think about them. You can think of it in this way. It may actually throw you into a career that you don't particularly want to do, but you do it because you want to get status. I remember a friend who was super smart, but really her giftings were in the humanities. They were kind of in that domain. But all of her family were doctors. And so she had the sense that really to have a career that mattered meant going into medicine. And so she smashed herself to try and make it through med and then to continue in a career with it. And it really, in the end, just wasn't a good fit. But because it was the sense of like, if once I'm a doctor, I will be someone, she almost had to wedge her personality into this career just to make it happen. See, it actually hollows out. We actually lose a sense of what we want when our worth is caught up in what others think of us. You can see this even in social media. Most people have observed that the phenomenon in social media that no one really saw was coming was that initially what happened was posts would drive likes. So you just post something that you're interested in and then it happens to get likes. But once we saw that that felt quite good, what then happened was we started to post things in order to get the likes. Does that sort of make sense, the switch there? So it went from posts driving likes to likes driving posts. And so this is how you lead, you, you lead into kind of a curated life. I do things not because I necessarily enjoy them or find any innate kind of enjoyment in them. I do them because I'll actually get a response from others and that feels good. And when this happens, it actually hollows out our life. When our worth is caught up in our relationships, it actually becomes hard to work out what I really want. Do I genuinely love this person? 
or do they just make me feel wanted? Do I really love playing music or do I just like the idea of being seen as a musician? Do I love sport or do I just want to succeed? Do I really want to be a doctor or just to be respected? All of it becomes very complicated. And what this does is it can really hollow out our life. We realize it's a hollow experience to live just wanting to get approval from others. Back when politicians were both mean to each other and funny at the same time, there were some, there were some great lions. And there was one, uh, one politician who, who eventually became Prime Minister of England. His name was Lloyd George. And he was known for being a bit of a people pleaser. So his reputation was that he just did things in order to get votes or likes or whatever else it was. Not likes. You know what I mean, right? Um, but the, his, his opponent, Lord Keynes, who, um, who didn't like him both on a personal and a political level, when he was asked what happened to Lloyd George when he was a alone in a room, Keynes replied, when Lloyd George is in alone in a room, there is no one there at all. That's great politics, right? We need more of that kind of banter in Parliament these days. And it's funny, but it's insightful. His, his comment there, of course, is like, it's a bit mean-spirited, but the observation is that there is a person who is so controlled by what others think that actually when no one else is around, it's probably not clear that even, they even exist. This is what you would call an identity crisis. When you get to the point where you're like, I don't, uh, other than what other people think of me, I don't know who I am or what I want. And so this is where we come to the question of how is it that we would find worth if it's not in what other people think of us, whether individuals or groups? How do you have a sense of self or of worth and what you want that doesn't come from that? Well, Jesus has something to say about this. In the passage that we read out before, look what Jesus says in Matthew 16, Senses 24 to 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus says to his disciples, those who are following him, he says, If you want to follow me, it means taking up your cross and following me. And everyone in, that, in an ancient audience would have understood what he was talking about. When you took up your cross, it meant you were on your way to your execution. You took the bar of the cross over your back and you were marching to the spot where you were going to die. So to take up your spot is to say, I'm going to die. And he follows this up in his language. He says, if you actually want to follow me, it means dying to yourself and living to me. He says, whoever would want to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses it for my sake will find it. What is he saying here? He's saying, if you give up trying to find a sense of identity by yourself and actually give it over to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And whatever you say life is about, that's what it's about. That's what it means to die to yourself and to live to Christ. To trust him, not just with your identity, but all of life. And he says, the irony is that if you lose your life, you actually find it. C.S. Lewis, who is ever quotable, has a quote on this particular passage as well and talks about the, the strange irony of what it means to follow Jesus and how in some ways it feels like a death and yet at the same time is the beginning of the real life. He says this, Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, 
and yours because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you're looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people unless you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature or art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original, whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it was told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without having noticed it. The principle runs through life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose yourself, your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes, and every day, <coughs> uh, favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body. In the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. When Jesus gathers his disciples in this passage and says to them, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it, but if you lose it for my sake, you will find it. He is saying to them, if you trust me, you will actually find what life is really about. You'll find a sense of worth that cannot be taken away from you. You'll find an identity that's not based on you or your abilities, but on who you are before God and his love for you. And it transforms everything. But one of the questions you may have from this passage is, well, if this is true, if what it means to find Jesus is to find life and identity and all these things that everyone's looking for, why, wouldn't, why isn't everyone a Christian? Why aren't people absolutely just flocking to the church then? Well, I think that's also in what Jesus says. See, what Jesus explains here is that to follow him, to give up your life in order to find it, is so counterintuitive that most people leave it un uninvestigated. See, there are a few things in life that really are counterintuitive and yet true. If you have ever been caught in a rip, no, actually, you probably want to know this before you get caught in a rip, but you may have heard the principle that if you're in a rip, the worst thing you can do is try and swim directly against it. It's taking you just behind sort of the waves and where they're coming in. And if you try to swim directly back to shore, unless you're an incredible swimmer, you're probably going to tire yourself out and most likely endanger your life. The advice that they give to everyone, the standard advice is, you have to just let it take you out. And once, you kind of, once it's done its work and you're out the back, you just make your way back in. And the reason that's so hard to take is that feels so counterintuitive. When you're struggling to keep up and you can see the shore getting further away, the most natural and intuitive thing is, I just want to get closer to the shore. That seems like the right thing to do in this moment. But of course, if you do that, ironically, you'll get further away from surviving. The safe thing to do is to let it take you to conserve your energy and then when it's safe, to actually paddle back to shore. And in the same way, what Jesus says here is so counterintuitive that most people can't believe it. How could letting someone else tell me what life is about and who I should be and what I should like, how would that be any better than anything else? How would it be that giving my life over to this Jesus would somehow be the thing that actually brings life? But here's the issue. We have to find our worth and our wants somewhere. And so we have to give someone that authority. So it's either the people around us or, as Jesus claims, God himself. The, the question really is, who do you trust with your identity? 
And Jesus in this passage is saying he's actually worth trusting because his reference to the cross there is not an accident. When Jesus mentions the cross in this passage and tells his disciples that they're going to have to take up their cross to follow him, it's no accident that he himself is going to take up the cross for them. That the reason Jesus came to earth, that he was God and man, was to die in our place to demonstrate God's love for us in Jesus. And if he loves us that much, if he is our maker and creator and the author of life and yet loves us that much, who better and who more authoritative would there be to hand our lives over to? The truth is, though it's counterintuitive, it is good. The God himself is all-powerful, all-wise and all-loving and worthy of our trust. That he alone is the one in who, who is big enough really to hang an identity upon and to find life. And I can tell you that this was, this was my experience of first coming to know Jesus when I was in, uh, in my last year of high school. I, I wasn't going through any kind of existential crisis as most year, uh, year 12 boys aren't. There wasn't much that I was thinking about that was on that depth of a level. But when I realized that this was true and that the Bible was true and with that that Jesus himself was true, I realized that I wanted to follow him. And for the first time in my life, because I'd heard the gospel message before, but it seemed like something that you just had to do in order to get into heaven. So I thought, I'll just put that off for as long as I possibly can. But when I realized that Jesus was true and actually wanted to follow him, and realized that it wasn't just that I had to change, but I actually wanted to change, I also realized in that moment that some of the things that, that following Jesus meant was meant that I was going to lose status in high school. And I remember it had such a significant shift in approaching relationships because at that point I had to accept, look, if I'm going to follow Jesus, that's, not gonna, that's certainly not going to make me more popular in this context. But at that point, it kind of broke the back, I guess, of wanting to impress other people so much. And so what it meant was for the first time, I think, in my high school years, I was like, look, I, I still care about what other people think about me, but this is actually what I want to do. And so if that means that others don't like me for it, I guess that's what it is. And for the first time, I didn't really mind. And it did change things. It transformed things in high school. And, and funnily enough, as I was doing this, it wasn't because I was looking for some sense of identity. I was just looking to follow Jesus, and it just, I, for the first time, seemed to be true. And so I went after following him. But with that, I feel like through that, I actually came to find a sense of self that was more secure than before. You know, in high school, oftentimes you, you do stuff just because that's what the crowd are actually doing. You listen to music that you look back now and just cringe at. Some of it has lasted, but there are other ones that weren't. But remember after, following Jesus, uh, after coming to know Jesus, it really took away the sense that I would do things just in order that other people would like me for it or would be impressed by it. It changed how I related to other students. And all of this came just from following Jesus. Now, I wish I could tell you right now that I was the kind of person that just didn't care what anyone ever thought about them. But the truth is, whenever people say that, you know it's, you know it's especially not true, right? But I can say this, and this has been true since the first day I started following Jesus. That the more I look to Jesus, the more I care about people and the less I care about what they think of me. And that's true. And I fall in and out of that as a sinful, broken person. But I know the more that I look, at, look to Christ and the more I just want to follow him, the more I relate to people like him. And with this, you might be saying, well, look, that's, that's nice and that was your experience 
but I can't see how that would actually fit in my life. Can I just finish with a, a couple of final thoughts? And the first one is this. Where do you get your sense of worth from, of identity? Because it has to come from somewhere. We cannot live without a sense that our life is valuable, and it has to come from somewhere. And if ultimately it's in people, and not in God himself, it is ultimately pretty fragile. And if this is something you're interested in investigating in, I realize that over these talks, I haven't argued for the existence of God. I haven't argued the case for the historicity of Jesus. I'm just kind of assuming upon that. There's only so much you can do in one talk anyway. But we run something called Alpha where it is the right space to just dive into those questions. But if you've ever thought that question, where is it I actually find a sense of self and a sense of worth? Then I encourage you that it's worth investigating who Jesus is. David Foster Wallace, who uh, we've quoted him two weeks in a row now. It doesn't happen every week if these have been your first two weeks. This has just happened to happen. He was, as Jacob mentioned last week, a troubled person uh, and, a, and a problematic character in some ways. Uh, but he, he wrote this on the reflection of where it is that we find worth. He said, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to numb, numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect and being smart and you'll end up feeling stupid or fraud and always on the verge of being found out. The observation he gives, and this was someone who never came to a faith, but from a distance he could see that if we're to find our worth and value in the things that are here and now, it will leave us ever more vulnerable. So maybe there's something to what Jesus says when he says, if you die to yourself, you will actually find life. That whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have revealed yourself through your word and in the person of Jesus. We praise you that you loved us enough to send Christ to die in our place, that we might find life in him. And Father, I just pray that for anyone here who is seeking, looking to find what life is about, that you would open their eyes and hearts to see your goodness and your love in the gospel of Jesus, to see that we find life and life eternal in him. And that in that we find everything else, our meaning, our identity, our connection and a sense of wonder that all of this comes through knowing Christ. Father, we pray these things for the glory of your name. Amen.